Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology and Thinking Mission. Hello, Jackson. Hello. My name is Werner, and uh, we have a very special guest today. Uh, This is Dr. Nari Santos joining us. Uh, on the podcast today. He is the Assistant Professor of Christian Ministries and Intercultural Studies at Tyndale University. He has uh, two PhDs, one from Dallas Theological Seminary and one from the University of Philippines. So uh, we're so blessed and grateful to have you on the podcast today. Welcome, Nari. Well, thank you for having me, Werner and Jackson. Such a privilege to be with you today. You bet. Nari, before I uh... And I want to make sure I pronounce you. Do you prefer Nari or Nari? Like any is okay. <laughs> All right. As long as you're referring to me, that's good. All right. Well, Nari, uh, I was telling Warner earlier, you are like the perfect guest for this podcast because as I look at your resume, your bio, bio you really do bring together missiology and theology together. You know, biblical studies and practical ministry like you know you're you're serving as a part-time senior pastor you've written books related to missions and the gospel of mark i mean it's just i love that integration has that always been a value of yours or just kind of stumble on the integration because you maybe got bored of one topic and said i want to say this one now i want to say that one <laughs> you know that's that's probably part of how god wired me i'd like to be engaged in both worlds in the academic and also in the practical ministry. I'd like to be able to engage in uh, something that relates to the church and mission and and yet be relevant in the context of mission agencies and and the academy. So yes, I'd like to be bridging those worlds. Mm. Nara, you are uh, living in Toronto. That's where Tyndall University is obviously. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, um, your work uh, there in Toronto. Sure, I'd, I'd love to share that. Uh, so my name, Nari, N-A-R-R-Y, in the Philippines means friend in one of our languages mm. there. So mm. I hope to be able to live up to what my name is. <laughs> and when I spoke one time in Egypt, one of the pastors said, Nari, your name in Arabic means fiery. And so mm. I'd like be that as well. I'd like to be on fire for God. And as you know, Santos uh, means saint. Mm. And so that's that's very meaningful for me. And, and, and there's a reason why I'd like to share about my name and also the names of my families, because names represent or identify who we are. And, and not just how we are called, but also by the way we seek to live ourselves. So my wife, uh, her name is Hazel. And it means God watches over. And her maiden name is Cruz, which means cross. Mm. And then our first daughter is named Irene, which we got from the Bible, meaning peace. Our second daughter is named Kyra, which means rejoiceful. So if we put together our names, the Santuses are a bunch of saints who are peaceful <laughs> because God watches over. Therefore, we can have joy and we can be friends with each other. So, so that's that's who my family is. And what's interesting in my family is that it's growing. My Irene got married two years ago, or three years ago now, to Aaron, and they now have two children named Ethan, Daniel, and Sophia. So it's interesting to have a growing family. And, and our church in the Philippines sent my family and me about 15 years ago to do church planting here in Canada. And, and so we are all here, although we returned to the Philippines to do more church planting over there. Mm. But yes, so right now I, I serve as faculty of the Tyndale Seminary or Tyndale University in practical theology and intercultural leadership. Okay, so you completed your first PhD, and I, I give this background for listeners because I think it really informs your whole approach and the things you emphasize. You got your first PhD in 94 in the New Testament, and then another one in 2006 uh, in Philippine Studies. Is that right? 
Yes. Yes. So I guess, you know, after 12 years, you said, I'm, I haven't been punished enough. So I'm going to go back and just, and do a whole nother PhD. Uh, how, what, what, I mean, people don't normally think I'm going to get two PhDs, but then do two PhDs in seemingly very different subjects. So how, how does that come about? And then how does that influence your work? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that question. Very important question, at least in, in where I'm coming from. So when I did my studies in New Testament, it, it really grounded me in terms of what the Word of God says and in relation to Christianity. And, and I find that very valuable as my foundation. But I also, in my ministry as pastor and also engaging in mission, I, I see that I need to also engage the culture and the context of the people we seek to reach. And so how best can I understand that context? By understanding at least where I am, uh, the Philippine culture. That's why I took a PhD in Philippine studies. And I was asking God, Lord, if you want me to do more research and writing in Christianity, because we, because of the blood of Jesus, I need to also understand what it means to be Filipino by blood so that I can understand our culture. Because there's a purpose there's a reason why you want us to be engaging Christianity and culture together. Mm. And Christ was an example of doing that, living out the reality of God as the word. And yet he was immersed. He was embedded in the culture when he came on earth. So I'd like to be able to engage both worlds. That's why I did those studies. Yeah, I can definitely see a sensitivity to culture. But what's beautiful is that you your exegesis, your interpretation is rigorous. A lot of times I hear people talk as if you either have cultural readings or you have a biblical exegetical reading and you just simply say, throw out those categories and <laughs> and realize that, uh, you know, that both, you know, obviously need the Bible, but your cultural lens can be very, very helpful in help, helping you see things. So one of the, in your recent book that we're going to talk about today, Family Relations in the Gospel of Mark, it's talking a whole lot about honor and shame. So what are some key points in your journey of learning about honor and shame and then its incorporation into biblical studies? Thank you for that question. It actually, you actually termed it right. My, my, my journey was actually something that I have to process in relation to the biblical text and honor and shame. It all started when I took my first sabbatical as a pastor in the Philippines. And I was given a writing grant at the Tyndale House by the Langham Writers Program of John Stott Ministries in Cambridge, England. So I wanted to write about the Gospel of Mark, which was part of my dissertation, and, and about our Filipino culture. So in my research, I found the conceptual and cultural bridge between the gospel and our culture. And so I said, this is it. It's, it's honor and shame. Because the Filipino culture is steeped in honor and shame concepts and values, particularly on the side of shame. Mm. Uh, so in the book, I argued that we are Christians by the blood of Christ, you know, by, the, by blood for a reason. And so in my journey, I discovered I really need to engage Christianity in the Bible in relation to the Filipino culture. And so I discovered that honor and shame was a good bridge for this mm. engagement and interaction. So that, that was my first book. I related uh, culture and Christianity in Mark and honor and shame. I entitled that um, Turning Our Shame into Honor, because we are so big on shame. We always are so conscious not to be shamed or not to shame others, but we're not thinking in terms of what is honorable. So that's the proposition I wrote in that in that other book. So what were your motivations for writing this book? Well, for this book, I, I wanted to make, to present a clear connection between honor and shame and the family mm. as it is played out in the Gospel of Mark. So. Honor and shame, cultural concepts and values are, are resident in the family. Uh, that's where honor and shame are at home. So I wanted to, to see this evidence throughout the gospel. And when I was looking at Mark, wow, it is full of honor and shame values in the context of family. And maybe even as a reflection of the culture of Jesus' day. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was probably two thirds of the way through the book, and I told Warner about it, and I said, "This guy's doing it right." Like the way he's going about talking about honor, shame, and integrating into his exegesis is exactly what I've dreamed of people doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it, his, his method is is in my opinion, really different than so much of what I have seen. So uh, talk to me about methodology, because sometimes people see honor shame as anthropology is something outside the Bible, so to speak. And then, then there's biblical exegesis. How would you say your methodology differs, say, from other works that integrate honor, shame, and biblical studies? Okay. Thank you. Uh, so most of the books written about honor and shame would focus on social and scientific criticism or anthropological uh, cultural tools. What I've done is, yes, I, I would use that, but I'd like to also be able to focus on the tools related to the text. So I use narrative criticism, reader response criticism, rhetorical criticism, and be able to combine the cultural anthropological tools and the narrative literary tools. So. I, I thought it's important to, to use an interdisciplinary approach or an integrative way so that we, we let the, the text speak in light of its context and what the author seeks to convey, and yet to also be privy to, to their, the first century Mediterranean world of the time of Christ. So another contribution I think that the book gives is that it seeks to trace the honor and shame motifs throughout the gospel. So I don't just pick and choose, okay, here is one verse, here is another verse, and, and maybe here is another one. So what I'd like to do is to actually trace the motifs, not just honor, not just shame, but the interplay of both, and, and how Mark plays that out from chapter 1 to chapter 16. So I, at least in my understanding, I've not seen a book that would trace the motifs throughout the narrative. Yeah, in fact, you have an outline. It's like two pages of outline of the book. And when I first saw what you that you were going to do an outline of honor shame themes, I tend to be a pessimist and I go oh, skeptical. Like, okay, let's just see if he stretches this. Let's just see if he really, like, you know, claims honor shame where it's not there. And my goodness, it was excellent. Like, it was really genuinely there. And you showed it so well in this, that one outline. Like I wanted to print off that outline just hanging on my wall because it, it was so integrated without pushing out every other theme. So I think you achieved that. Now, we're going to get into the weeds of your book in just a minute. But let's, as we kind of inch that way, help people know what's the thesis of your book. Uh, and then And then clarify after that, how might people misunderstand your thesis? You know, what, what is, what's a likely yeah. th- misreading of you? I think your question is really important. Now, the thesis of my book is that the Gospel of Mark redefines the value, the value system of the readers through the narrative reversal of honor and shame. But I think I see in the book that this narrative reversal is in the context of family relations. This reversal seeks to persuade the readers to view as honorable what have been regarded as shameful and to regard as dishonorable what has been viewed as honorable. And and so to clarify and and what I really mean so that people don't misunderstand me, I am not arguing in the book that the natural family is not important. Of course, they are still important. But in the gospel, Jesus was forming a new family that was based on the honor of God in God's court of reputation through Jesus. So this new Jesus family is to be valued as more important than the natural family. So in the gospel, we see we do not see the family abolished. We do not want to I don't want to communicate that we're abolishing the importance of family, but we're extending the value family. The borders of kinship is not removed, but we are resetting it. Another thing I'd like to clarify is that I'm not arguing that honor and shame 
are not important, but that they are radically reversed and redefined in the gospel in terms of the content of what's honorable and shameful in the sight of the Heavenly Father. So that's that's what I'd like to clarify. Mm. Now, you hit on one last thing before we jump into to Mark. You seem to be talking about honor shame in an ethical sense, not mm-hmm. just a... I just say general, like, uh, hey, I, I, I'm famous or I'm well known or I feel ashamed psychologically. But could you elaborate for listeners about this ethical aspect of honor? Sure. Uh, before I actually explain that a little, the ethical side of honor, maybe the, the common understanding of honor is either it's ascribed or given by virtue of family blood and family name, or it is ascribed. It is achieved or acquired through one's own merits or excellence. But when Jesus presents what is really honorable, he does not refer to what is ascribed or acquired. He talks about the bestowal of honor from being identified with him and and his new family honor system. And in his new family honor system includes ethical, moral values that are consistent with his reversed honor-shame values. And I talk more of that in the book. What are these honor-shame values that Jesus reverses? It's not the concept that is abolished. It's the content of what is honorable and shameful that Jesus talks about. Hmm. Uh, thank you. I think it's really helpful. Uh, Werner, you had some questions. about. You want to get us into the book a little bit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, I want to let our... Uh, listeners become aware of the fact that we are discussing Dr. Nari Santos's uh, fine book called Family Relations in the Gospel of Mark, published in 2021 uh, by Peter Lang. Uh, Nari, uh, before we get into specific texts in the in the Gospel of Mark, could you just help us understand what were the the basic family values. What what were the honor shame dynamics associated with the family in the time of Jesus in, in first century Palestine? Let me let me share a few of those honor shame values at the time of Christ. First, I think one is the the value of doing the will of the natural family, which is to be above everyone, above everything. And if they do the will of the family, that, that's very honorable. I think another one is, is the setting of, of the, the mind of human beings as honorable. What do people think? The significant others in one's life, what do they think is, is very important. The other, I think, is the value of a person of power, a person of authority as the one lording over others. That's that's very honorable. When we go to the side of what is shameful, if a person suffers or a person is persecuted or a person eventually dies, that's, that's a shameful thing. Another one I, I can see in terms of cultural perception is, is the perception of limited good. Uh, the thinking of the first century Mediterranean world is that there is a limited supply of goods. There is a limited supply of honor. So that when one person increases in honor, other people decreases in their own honor. I think these are the, the vital features of, of family and value system and, and also honor and shame in that context. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in one place in your book, I think the phrase blood is thicker than water. And sometimes yes. we hear that a relative to family. Can you explain that that uh, phrase from an honor-shame perspective? Sure. Uh, the, the important value of honor and shame is embedded in the family. So if a person is to be honorable, that person must always keep the honor of the family. And, and this honor is seen in, in the name of the family, it's also seen in the blood of the family. So the expression uh, blood is thicker than water 
means that the person in the family is to be loyal to the family at all costs. There should not be an instance when that family would bring, or that person would bring shame to the family. So that that is so important in the mind of of a of a family or a member of the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, you use the word very often. Uh, the word relativize that that mm-hmm. the gospel of Mark uh, in the gospel of Mark Jesus is relativizing the honor of the family and uh on page 76 uh i'm just going to quote a couple of sentences here from from your book Uh, you write mark seeks to persuade his readers to reverse their value system what -hmm. they consider as shameful must now be valued as honorable and what they view as honorable must now be seen as dishonorable the the disciples discover their new identity in Jesus. As a result, they are identified with God's new family that Jesus is calling people to enter into. This new social structure spells out their new in-group identity and source of true honor. This Mm -hmm. new structure also specifies their new allegiance, loyalty, privileges, and entitlements. Now, Mm That phrase, their new in-group identity and their true source of honor, uh, this is particularly intriguing to me. Can you unpack this a little bit uh, by sure. by referencing um, uh, what happens in, in Mark 3, uh, 31 to 35? You, you spend a, uh, quite a bit of time on that particular text. So uh, could you unpack that for us? Sure. Uh, let me begin by maybe defining or explaining a little what relativizing the family means. So I generally mean that the Gospel of Mark transformed the family relations in the narrative. Specifically, I mean that Mark takes away the foremost importance of the first century family honor. So allegiance to Jesus and the Heavenly Father transcends family ties, and it also legitimizes or legitimates the subordination of the natural family to the new family of God in Jesus. So I give the example in chapter 3, when I see Mark relativizing the the role of the natural family through the example of Jesus. So in chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus, uh, the family of Jesus wants to take him because he is perceived by them as getting mad. He's not able to eat anymore because of what he's doing. So when the crowd in the house informs Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside seeking for him, I find it interesting that Jesus asks in verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? It's not as if Jesus forgot who the mother and brothers were, but he was wanting them to think of the of the priority of the natural family. Then he looks around and he answers his own question. Here is my mother and my brothers. So I see Jesus here qualifying or widening the scope of those new mothers and those new brothers. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we see Jesus introducing a new concept of family, which is more honorable in his sight. In in the use of Jesus's words, I see Mark identifying what is honorable within his new family, which is doing the will of God. I, I see this in his example of relativizing the priority or primacy of the natural family. Now, He also quoted a portion related to the in-group language that is common in the gospel, also in-group, out-group. And and that kind of language is also the first century Mediterranean culture. Now, the social distinction of in-group or out-group marks the moral relations and assessments of people. To be part of the in-group, 
means to be rooted in kinship. It means to be rooted in family relations, to be rooted in extensions or relatives. So those are the in-group who need to be supported, respected, and given loyalty. So when we look at the followers of Jesus, now they belong to the in-group of God's new family with its new sets of honor based on their identity with the Heavenly Father, their heavenly patron, through Jesus, the honorable one, the source of true honor, and the broker between the Heavenly Father and then the disciples of Jesus. Uh, Neri, a a lot of these passages where Jesus is relativizing blood family, Mm -hmm. I found it again and again in China and East Asia more generally, these are major stumbling block passages for people when they were considering coming to faith or just trying to explain to their families why they came to faith. Uh, Because Jesus really does not come across as, you know, from their perspective, very Mm -hmm. pro-family and or, you know, family values. So how, how do you respond to those people who say, seems like Jesus says, you know, throw your family out and just replace them with his new family. And that's just kind of the way they, they put it. How would, you, how would you respond to them? I think one way to respond to them is to say that Jesus is actually making us understand what it means to be part of the family of God. Jesus is using the metaphor or the picture of the family as a picture of what it means to belong to his family. So we're not saying the family, the natural family is not important. Uh, they are definitely important. They shape us. They they instill important values in our lives. So I, I love my family, our extended family. But But what Mark is doing through the teaching of Jesus, he's saying, you know what? If you compare the value of both families, the family of God and the family that you naturally come from, it has to be the family of God that has more importance. And that's why Mark, I see, spends the whole narrative reversing these values. For example, uh, in relation to doing the will of the natural family, we see the reversal that for Jesus, doing the will of God is what is really important to the new family of God. So instead of thinking, setting the mind on things of men and women in in family, Jesus was teaching, you set your mind on the things of God, especially in the context when Peter was rebuked by Jesus, when he said, get thee behind me, because he was thinking the ways of human beings, not the ways of God. Another reversal uh, to help explain this is, when people want to lord it over others, then they have to start thinking about the value that Jesus says, we need to be slave of all. We need to be servant of all in the family, outside of the family. So that might be one way to, to help transition the thinking from our natural family. Let us think in terms of the family of God. Hmm. I think this is such an important discussion, uh, Nari, because, you know, in uh, it's not only in, in East Asia where the family is important, but in evangelicalism, mm-hmm. you know, we have a lot of emphasis on family values, and mm-hmm. and it's almost as though sometimes the family can do no wrong, and and this is this is an area where relativizing the family is actually in a way good for the family because if the family is ultimate then the family can also be a kind of a haven for sin and immorality and trauma that that goes unchecked and yes. and and so i think that there's uh you know there's a there's a conversation here about this where Jesus relativizing the family ultimately is good for the family. How do you see that? Yes, I, I see that value. It's, it actually is for the good of the natural family when people are able to transition to see the family values that they hold as being representative of the values of the family of God. So there has to in, be that integration that what we value in our natural families, actually the value of family 
being related, belonging to the family of God. So there can indeed be overlaps that can make understanding the role of family significant, not just in the sight of God, but also in the sight of others. There's another text in 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 Matthew, excuse me, in Mark, where uh, Jesus is calling uh, Simon and Andrew, who are are, are fishermen, uh, <laughs> and uh, I have in in my own Bible, I say. Uh, there's new honor for fishermen, or he's relativizing uh, not only vocational honor, but family honor in this passage. Can you explain how how uh, Jesus is relativizing family honor also in that text where where Jesus is where, where Jesus is calling uh, these fishermen to leave and follow him? Yes. So in Mark chapter one, there are two sets of calls that Mark highlights. Uh, the first is the call of the two of the first set of brothers. Uh, we have Simon and Andrew. And the second set of call is in the context of the two brothers, James and John. And by the way, in that second call of Jesus, we see that the father was there too, mm-hmm. and, and that they were mending nets with the hired servants. So, so you see the presence of family relations as being part of the trade of the family. They, they do things together. They help each other do the work of the family. So, so that's a beautiful picture that Jesus begins with the natural families and he calls people to be part of his new family in the context of the natural family. And yet even there, especially in the second call, boy, this is such a huge call because it was in the hearing of the of of their father Zebedee, uh, they were in the presence of Jesus calling the two brothers to leave what they're doing. He was saying, "Come, follow me," and, and that was a huge break, a huge demarcation of leaving the family and the family craft or business or trade. And following a more important family in the family of Jesus. So it was, in a sense, shameful because, whoa, these two brothers, they're leaving their own father. That's a shameful thing to do. And yet Jesus was really letting them count the cost. That was part of relativizing as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it come, there's some practical ways this, you know, uh, affects people's lives, you know, in... China, we would see they would call girls when they reached 30, women at when they reached 30 and they didn't get married, they were called leftovers. That was kind of the name that the culture gave them. And so you see eventually these Christian women uh give in and compromise and marry just whoever their parents told them to marry, uh, mm-hmm. just because so they wouldn't have to endure that shame. And so then they really had to choose. Am I choosing the values of the family of God and man or believer and someone who has godly character? Or do I just marry whoever they arrange me with? So it really became a choice for them. And in the States, I've seen that in the Christian families, uh, there actually, ironically has to be a choice because a lot of times the biggest hindrances for families becoming missionaries or going overseas is the Christian family yes. who, who are really uh, reaffirming a lot of cultural values or just simply whatever other values that, hey, this is where you need to be. You need to be safe. You need to have money. You need to have this. And yeah. so this really, this continues to play out. It's not just some drama in scripture. It's, I see this all the time where people have to choose. Well, what, what value system are you going to pick? Sure. And very true. And even here in the Canadian context, when I was asked families who leave the Philippines, why did you leave the Philippines? And, and they would say, um, it's, it's for the future of our children. And yet when we hear how much they are involved in church, the, the parents do not encourage the children to be more involved in Christ and things of God because they have to study, they have to prioritize they, uh, their, their school and their future. So the other thing too that relates to that is, oh, you, you probably don't need to be too involved anymore in the church because we... We are comfortable 
so so the value of the uh, of the things of God are subsumed under the family values or cultural values that that may go against the grain of what it means to follow Jesus. Mm. I think that is a ex, uh, I think it's an extremely relevant uh, dynamic, not only to to Filipino families coming to the U.S., but to you know families who have been. Uh, in Canada or in the West for many genera generations. I, I think this transformation of values uh, that you emphasize so strongly uh, through your exegesis of Mark, this, this transformation of values, I found, as I read the book, Nari, to be really challenging. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about the significance of the transformation of our values. Sure. The, the transformation of values is actually an ongoing daily experience. It's not as if, okay, I'm transformed. I know everything that God wants me to become and wants me to do. Therefore, I, I'm okay. It, it's actually a daily experience of following what's honorable before God. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, the transformation Jesus gives to his disciples or the challenge to be transformed is actually evident in the middle portion of the gospel. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Here we see the three discipleship teachings of Jesus. These are actually the, the, the challenges that he gives to the disciples in being transformed in relation to honor and shame. Uh, for example, in chapter 8, Jesus gives a pattern followed also in chapter 9 and chapter 10. The first pattern is Jesus announces his passion that he will be suffering brought to the hands of religious leaders, he will be killed, and on the first day, on the third day, he will rise from the dead. And then the second part of the pattern is, there is misunderstanding by the disciples. For example, in chapter 8, we see, oh, Peter misunderstand what it means. He, he's basically saying, no, you, you cannot suffer, you cannot die. Because in the honor-shame mindset of the time, to suffer, to die, is shameful. There's nothing honorable in suffering, in being persecuted, going through your passion. So there's a misunderstanding. And what Jesus does is that he corrects that misunderstanding and, and he reverses it. He, he basically says, if you want to follow me, you need, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And, and Jesus was saying, what is really honorable is to follow my way of suffering because he is the suffering messiah. When we go to chapter 9, we see the same pattern. Jesus gives a second time his passion prediction, but there is a misunderstanding. Uh, the disciples were afraid to ask him, and that misunderstanding is seen when, when we see that the disciples were arguing on the way who among them was the greatest. And Jesus had to correct that. And he had to say, if you want to be the first, you need to be the servant of all. And here he was again making that reversal, making the transformation. Jesus is not questioning that it is good to be first. He's not saying it's bad. He's saying it's good. But the way to be first is to be yeah. servant of all. That's the reversal. That's the transformation. And then the third we see in chapter 10 Jesus again gives the pattern of giving his third passion prediction, and then the disciples misunderstand. James and John approaches Jesus and tells Jesus, give us the seats of honor at your right hand and at your left in your glory. And then Jesus asks them, you, you don't know what you're saying. And then he corrects them, and he says, people, the Gentiles lord it over others, but not so among you. If you want to be the greatest, to be the first, you need to be slave of all. 
And then he tells it again, the transformation is really a different way of thinking. If you want to be first, you need to be the last. You need to be the servant of all. You need to be slave of all. So it's an ongoing teaching Jesus was telling them because it's an ongoing practice they need to lead. They need to live out. That is really powerful, Larry. When we see those teachings of Jesus, not as uh, not as mere sayings that are uh, poetic, but actual practical ways of living. Uh, to which Christians are called to emulate. You know, we're, we're called to follow Jesus, not in terms of just, well, he died for my sins, but we're, we're called to emulate Jesus, to imitate Jesus, uh, to walk in the way of Jesus. That really hit home for me as I read, as I read your book. And I was under a lot of conviction, actually, uh, because it's so easy to get into a mode of, well, I, I denied myself in following Christ years ago when I decided to be involved in, in missions. Uh, and, uh, you know, now life is more comfortable and I don't need to really uh, deny myself day to day. But when I read this text and in the light of honor and shame, the way you've described it and unpacked it, it, it really challenged me. And I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. The you know the the cross is the paradigm for the the entire Christian life, the cruciform way of living, and and so when people here are talking about honor and shame and character transformation, you're you're not just simply leaving it to the how do we live a good life or live an honorable life, whatever else. You go straight to the heart of Christian theology, Christian thinking, because chapter six you have a chapter called from jesus shameful death to triumphant honor so um how is it that you see mark doing this honor shame reversal in at the climax of mark at this mm -hmm. at the cross can you unpack that sure sure uh the way i see mark turn that shameful death on the cross as honorable is in two or three ways. The first is through the the end of the crucifixion scene did not end with Jesus in his in his last breath. It actually ended with a testimony of a centurion saying, truly, this is the Son of Man. This is the Son of God. It's it's a testimony that says this man is different. His death it's not like any other death. And when we look at that expression, this is truly God's son. This is actually the culmination of Mark's development of who Jesus is from the beginning until the end. L let me share you with you what I mean. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark basically presents not just the introduction, not just a title or the theme of the of the gospel he's basically saying this is the way you are to see jesus he begins by saying jesus the christ the son of god and so this is the way you are to see this the one who starts this new family as the son of god but when we look at the un unfolding of the narrative we see the affirmation that jesus is the son when we go to the baptism setting, the voice from heaven, mm. heaven opens up and the voice of the heavenly father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is that affirmation of that heavenly voice. This is my son. He is so valuable. He's so important. And the reason why he's pleasing to me is because he, he obeys me. He does my will. And then we go next to chapter 9 at the transfiguration and there there is another attestation another affirmation from the same heavenly voice that speaks at the transfiguration this is my son whom i love listen to him and that's really the value of who jesus is above and beyond who elijah is 
above and beyond who Moses is, who appeared at the transfiguration as well. But only in chapter 15 do we hear an affirmation that Jesus is God's son from a human character. The first we see in the voice of the Heavenly Father at the baptism, the second in the voice of the Heavenly Father at the transfiguration. Of course, Mark talks about this is the way you see Jesus from chapter 1, verse 1. But the human character in the narrative where we see Jesus being affirmed as the son is from the lips of the centurion. So we see the ending of the, of the crucifixion scene, not as a shameful event, but a declaration of the person, the identity of Jesus. Another way I see Mark make the death of Jesus not shameful, but honorable was in the resurrection scene in chapter 16. Here we see that Jesus is alive and we see the women witness that. And, and the angel, the man in white robes said, tell this to Peter and the other disciples and meet him in Galilee where he told you that he will meet you before he died. Again, that was actually a declaration that Jesus will not end dead. He will be risen from the dead. And in fact, he will be restored with the disciples who left him. So I see another instance in the crucifixion scene that Jesus was being presented by Mark with a, a title that seems ironic. We see the sign on his, on his cross, this is the king of the Jews. Of course he was. But people were deriding, deriding Jesus at the cross. Oh, you are the king of Israel. Come down you, if you really are God. What they did not realize is that ironically, it's not Jesus who needs this saving at the cross. It is them who were deriding him who needed saving because of Jesus on the cross. That really he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of all nations. Amen. I feel like we should have just break out in worship service just <laughs> <laughs> after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you see this is this whole honor shame reversal as unique to Mark, or do you also see this in other books, even if you haven't written books on them? Wow, this this is a pattern that I see in the other New Testament books. Uh, one that I can think of right now would be the the kenosis passage or the emptying of Jesus in Philippians chapter two, verses six to twelve. Here we see Paul talk about Jesus who in his very nature, God, emptied himself, not of being God, but of the glories of being God. And then he took the form of a servant, or in fact, a slave, born in human likeness, and then he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it didn't end with his, not just humility or humiliation at the cross. What God does is that he reverses things. And then after the death of Christ on the cross, we see that God highly honored or exalted Jesus, gave him the name above all names, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So what a beautiful picture of reversal. Uh, Jesus coming from heaven, humbling himself, humiliated at the cross, and yet he was honored again by the Father after that. And when I also think of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, we, we see John begin with Jesus being affirmed as God. But in his humility, he dwelt among us. He, he tabernacled or he was incarnated. And what I find also interesting is that when we go almost to the, uh, to the end of the Gospel, when the Greeks approach Jesus, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Even though, the, even though Jesus was referring to his passion, suffering, and death, he actually refers to that with the perspective that it was the hour for him to be glorified or to be honored. So that reversal is really seen even though he had to go through his passion, suffering, and death. He would be honored as well. Hmm. So, so if the average person wants to start observing 
these sorts of patterns, these sorts of messages within the text. Um, what strategies would you or devices might people start needing to pay attention to when they're reading one book or another? They can just be kind of attuned to, oh, wait a minute, I think we're talking about honor and shame here, an honor shame reversal. Are there certain patterns that you see the different authors use that would help us to identify more easily? Yes, yes, there are. Uh, in fact, one, aside from looking at themes or motifs related to family, uh, because if you, you see how people value family and do things together as a family, there's mention of, of uh, relatives, there's mention of brothers, sisters, doing things together. That, that's a place where, where you see honor at work. But there's also another a cultural value or device that can help us see the presence of of honor and shame and, and and it's through the patronage system so the patronage system is when there is a relationship of unequals uh by by that i mean there's somebody who is more honorable than others others are of lowly honor ranking and so how are they to relate and the way to do that is to be able to see that there is a broker who can bring the benefits, the goods of the patron to the client who, who has no honor ranking. And, and as a result of that, that person who is a client can, can show devotion and loyalty to the patron and be able to say, I, I will be doing the services that are pleasing to my patron. So having that kind of unequal relationship is bridged through a broker or a mediator or a go-between. Uh, and, and of course, we see that easily that Jesus is the broker. He is the go-between. Uh, the Heavenly Father is, is our patron, and then we are able to, to relate with the Father through Jesus Christ. Another way we can see it unpacked, especially in the in the Gospels and in the narrative is how do people relate when they are equals? Uh, one cultural way in the first century Mediterranean world is what they call a, a challenge and response. Uh, it's a form of social contest, contest that, that seeks to gain incremental amounts of honor through the interaction. And, and we see this a lot in, in the Gospel of Mark. It can be a positive social contest. It can be a negative social contest. For example, it can be positive in the sense when somebody approaches Jesus and requests for help. And, and that's actually an effort to be in the positive side of of that social context, seeking to gain help from Jesus. And, and Jesus can either say yes or no. There are times he would say no, there are times he would say yes. And, and when he's, for example, let me give you an example. When Jesus uh, was asked by the father of the epileptic son, and Jesus replied, this adulterous generation, how long will I be with you? And yet, because of the faith he sees in the father, what we see is that Jesus grants the healing of the son. Uh, so that's, that's an example of relationship between equals uh, that, that is at work in the Gospels. Mm. Nari, uh, in your book, which again, I'll, I'll give the uh, title of, it's called Family Relations in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you trace uh, these various honor-shame dynamics uh, from the very beginning of the of the gospel all the way to the all the way to the end, and uh, you also analyze the the narrative structure, which I think is a uh, blending that with honor-shame dynamics is a is a great innovation. Uh, speaking more practically now. Um, how do you think these ideas and your analysis can help uh, pastors and you know Christians uh, articulate the gospel in perhaps a, 
a more relevant way or a or a novel way. Uh, can you talk just about you know just contextualizing the gospel and making the gospel relevant? Sure. Uh, and I'm glad you you raised this questions that has to do with ministry and mission, uh, so that we are able to bridge the world of the text to the world of where the people are. So I I see first the value of being sensitive to the reality that even today in the global church, in the global South, there are cultures that are influenced greatly by honor and shame uh, value systems. So whether we are a pastor, a missionary, or, or a, a minister in, in some way, we need to be able to engage and reach out to the people embedded within this honor-shame system. And, and that way of engaging and reaching out needs to be presenting the gospel and living out the gospel with an awareness of how the Bible speaks into what's honorable in the sight of God and also what's shameful in the sight of God. So a way to help them see is that God is the important heavenly court of reputation whose honor and glory we need to seek and to also please. Another way we can probably help those who minister uh, among honor-shame cultures is to be able to transform and translate honor-shame values that address the value of family, community, relationship, sensitivity to the honor of others, refraining from what will shame them or not doing shameful things toward them. And maybe another one is to be careful to present the gospel in ways that are understandable to the people in light of their worldviews or in light of their own values. The good thing about the gospel of Jesus is that it is translatable to contexts that are different from ours, to the culture of people from different backgrounds who seek, whom we seek to engage and also to reach. Another help, I think, is to be able to use the language of family because many cultures resonate with the value of family. So we can emphasize the value of being in relationship with God in Christ, belonging to his family, and living out the values of growing and serving not just one another, but those in our community, those who are uh, in this particular context of honor and shame. Maybe another way we can think is to, and, and I can think maybe of my Filipino context, is to look for deep cultural structures. When I say deep cultural structures, I'm referring to, to what does a particular culture really value? This is something that really identifies them as, hey, this is important to me, and relate the truth of the gospel to that deep cultural structure. For example, for Filipinos, the concept of a go-between or a mediator is very important religiously, especially in the context of having conflict, not just within the family, but conflict in the neighborhood, conflict in different contexts, whether politically, socially, religiously. So we can use the language of Jesus as our mediator between God and people. We can see that Jesus is the one who can bridge the conflicts of enemies to become friends and to be able to see Jesus as the one who can restore relationships to harmony. And of course, that means that we too need to become people of peace, we need to become people of harmony because we are followers of Jesus. So these are some initial ways we can help those who are frontliners in the mission field or in the church world. And there, there, is a, there is a lot of meat there. I mean, I would totally encourage listeners to go back, rewind, get a pen out, write these down, have a conversation with people, talk to people in your ministry and figure out okay, how do we do what he just said. Um, you know, how do we think through, for example, honor, shame, reversal in our context mm -hmm. uh, and in our personal lives? Um, especially, you know, shame is becoming a, a pretty popular topic to talk about. Um, honor is growing, but 
uh, this really does get to so many heart level issues. And I think it helps bring theology and the heart together where sometimes the heart, the, people say the Bible or theology and it only stays in the head, but mm-hmm. not in this case. I mean, it, it can't, you can't talk about this topic and not immediately be pressing on the heart. Sure. Very true. And, and I, I like that. We really need to get to the heart issues of where people are. Mm-hmm. Well, we are running towards the end of our time here, and we do like to ask uh, a few questions of guests. And um, and so we'll like to hear what you have to think, uh, what you think about these. Because this is a bringing together theology and missions, um, what is it you wish theology would learn from missions? And, and what do you wish that missions would learn from theology? I feel like we got an hour of that answer, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but I'll just throw it out there in case there's something that you would like to really hone in on and focus on a little bit more than, than you have. Sure. Uh, you know, if there's a wish I have for theology, I wish that we can learn that our theological and biblical reflections need to be translated and related to culture and the context of the people we seek to reach. We, we cannot end with simply having theological systematized reflections. Uh, We need to understand that theology is not abstract. Theology is not cerebral, but it's practical. It's translatable to life, to relationship, and to mission. In fact, there's a, as I think now, there's a beautiful uh, definition of theology that I encountered before. It says, theology is paying attention to God and his relatedness to everything. So when we make reflections, we basically are wanting to pay attention to what God is doing, yes, in our lives, but to the people we serve and to the people we seek to reach. So we need to be attentive to what, how God is related to everything and pay attention to what God is doing. And in, in fact, that's that's where we I think we need to be mindful of that we need to be seeking to discern how God is at work, that even before we come to a place, God was already at work, and be sensitive to following where God is working, rather than to be able to do what we want and asking God to bless it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we have... Uh, our listeners are, are thinkers who want to put stuff into practice. So uh, I think you're really touching on a point that will hit our, re- our listeners a lot. So uh, whether it be on that topic or whether it be on honor shame, do you have any books that you'd recommend uh, people check out if they want to uh, sure, take sure. on this take on this perspective that you talked about? Maybe before we go there, I was also thinking. There's a wish I I want to have in relation to those involved in missions and missiology. And and it is, I wish that we can learn that theology, uh, we can learn from theology. uh, And it is this, that we must also not simply begin with what works in ministry or what is effective or what is practical, but we begin with with the theology of mission or the theology of of reaching out based on biblical truths and the social and cultural realities that are present in the text. So we need to engage in more theological reflections as we seek to also discern how best to be on mission with God. Mm. Now, now to the question you you asked last, uh, I think both your books are very helpful. I, I really enjoy uh, the book that you, Jackson, wrote on reading Romans with Eastern eyes, honor and shame in Paul's message and mission. I find that also very helpful to see that Romans, I, I've read the book and I've had the time to interview you about it. And, and it really brings the reality of the book of Romans to the message of Paul and mission for today. And I also had an opportunity to interview Werner in relation to his book with Christopher Flanders on honor, shame, and the gospel, reframing our message and ministry. 
So I like what both of you are doing. You're, you're relating the text, the world of the text, not just to honor and shame, but also how does it relate to mission, the mission, the ministry, and our message. Another one that I find helpful is the book of Richard James and Randall Richards on misreading scripture with individualist eyes, patronage, honor, and shame in the biblical world. So those those are helpful books, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I, at least we're going to agree on those books, I think. <laughs> That's very kind of you. I appreciate that, Neri. <laughs> Thank you, Nara. I really encourage unexpected, unexpected. Do do more writings on honor and shame. I, I really encourage you because this is such a relevant and 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 really the way the gospel can really open up in great ways using the the honor shame concept and value. Well, we'll encourage you to do the same thing. Uh, I <laughs> literally, literally this morning before getting on, I finished my the final edits of my next book that's I'm giving to the publisher back. And uh, so uh, I, I, I'm already trying to do that, but what about you? Or do you have, do you have anything in the works? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm hoping to be able to explore the role of Jesus as the go between. Uh, because sometimes in, especially in our polarized world, we, we can't speak to each other. We are just worlds apart and we need ways to bridge our worlds. And I see the role of Jesus. I can uh, I see that in Mark. I see that in other passages. But, but if we can just see that Jesus is the model of bridging both worlds, we can follow the way of Jesus to be our go-between. I love that, Neri. Um, that's a very, very significant topic in our world because mm. of how much polarization Yes, uh, is is uh, present and increasing in uh, in our land and in, in many nations. So we really appreciate that work that you're doing, Jackson or Nary. Uh, any any final words that you want to share? No, not for me. I'm good, but maybe just a quick challenge to our listeners that keep learning, keep listening. Keep loving the people that God calls you to serve. And, and the best way to learn from them and love them is to listen to them, especially if they have values of honor and shame. Wow, we, we can be the best students of the people we seek to serve. Well, that's excellent, uh, Neri. Thank you so much for taking this time to converse with us about this uh, important subject. Uh, again, the title of uh, your book is family relations in the gospel of mark published by peter lang uh, to all of our listeners we want to say thank you for joining us uh, please give us your recommendations on apple uh, podcasts or wherever you uh, listen and download your podcasts we so appreciate that and uh, until next time this is werner and jackson signing off from doing theology thinking mission Thank you.